Father God, we've just reminded ourselves as we have sung that it's only by grace that we can enter your presence. Uh, Lord, we know that. Uh, We declare it again this evening that we don't come here on our own merits, but only because you're a, a good and a gracious God. Lord, it's only by your grace that we have your word and that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So we come now eager to receive from you as you open your word to us. We pray that you would speak to us one last time from from this part of your word. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapters 33 and 34 of Genesis, we remarked how the life of Jacob feels a little bit like a soap opera at times. Time and time again, the narrative leaves us wondering what's going to happen next, how the plot is going to develop, what's going to happen with the characters, and particularly what's going to happen with Jacob. Well, tonight we come pretty much to the end of the road for this particular character, Jacob. Apart from a couple of cameos later in the book of Genesis, Jacob is being written out of the plot here this evening. As you know, if you watch soaps, usually they have to do something quite dramatic to, to get somebody out of a soap, they have to um, be killed or, or something. Uh, well, this, this won't be quite as dramatic uh, as uh, an EastEnders plot, but Jacob is, is going to, to move into the background after chapter 35, and his sons are going to take over for the rest of the book of Genesis. Before Jacob leaves the stage, there's un- some unfinished business, uh, particularly for us, as we have read these chapters together, there's the small matter, I think, of assessing the whole. Uh, What's happened here? What has has happened in in Jacob's life, and in particular, what has God been doing? Those are the kind of questions we want to try and answer this evening. In chapter 35, the story actually turns full circle, and we find Jacob back in familiar territory because he returns to Bethel a place which was very important to him when he was previously there 20 years ago. And as we find Jacob back at Bethel, it's, it's very interesting to notice what has changed and what things haven't changed. Some things haven't changed. And God in particular, in his faithfulness, hasn't changed. Jacob has changed. He's an entirely different man. So let's pick up the story quickly here in verse 1. By this stage, you'll remember that Jacob has returned to his homeland of Canaan. He's been 20 years with Laban in Paddan Aram. And in chapter 33, we learned of a time when he was reconciled with his brother Esau. In chapter 34, we learned of a, a, a very unsavory incident at Shechem. But now, in chapter 35, Jacob's finally going in the right direction. In verse 1, he's listening to God's command. Go up to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. It's lovely. Jacob responds immediately. And that's always important in the biblical narrative. When a command's given, you you look to see what happens. Is there a response? And if so, is it an immediate one? But here we see Jacob obedient and promptly obedient. Before, though, before he takes his family 
to worship the true and the living God. He needs to do something, though. He needs to make sure they're rid uh, of the false gods who still travel with them. So he says to, to his family and those who travel with them, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. And we read in verse 4 that the people gave up their foreign gods. They also gave up the good luck charm earrings that they were wearing. And Jacob takes all of this stuff and buries it in the ground under a tree. This is interesting. It's 20 years since Jacob first met with God at Bethel, and yet there are still false gods traveling with him and with his family. Is it the case that some members of of Jacob's wider family haven't yet understood the exclusive claims that the God of Jacob makes on them? Or is even Jacob's faith the kind of faith that allows him to worship God all the while keeping a few backup interests, a few other deities, maybe even lesser deities in his mind, but just things that he's interested in and has been interested in? Is that the case? We're not sure. But either way, his response at this point is exemplary. Jacob knows that you can't worship God properly while you take false and foreign gods with you. And he knows well that as the head of the household, it's his responsibility to sort this out. So he's quick and he's decisive. The foreign gods are disposed of. We talked about this briefly in chapter 31, how the narrator does a brilliant job of undermining these foreign and false gods. If you remember, in that instance, Laban came to Jacob and he complained because Jacob had stolen his his gods. He thought, you know, how ridiculous is that? How can you steal a god from somebody? What kind of a god can you steal? And you'll remember how Rachel packed these gods in her saddlebags and ended up sitting on them. Again, what kind of a god can you pack into a bag and, and end up sitting on? And now here in chapter 35, they're popped in a hole in the ground. Jacob disposes of them like you throw out your pizza box on a Saturday night when you finished with them. That's what these gods have come to. What kind of a god can simply be popped in the bin? In contrast with the true and the living God, Laban's gods are laughable, absolutely laughable. And as we said a few weeks ago when we thought about this, that's, that's important that we keep that before us always. All those things in our lives that vie for our attention, that distract us from a a full commitment to the true and living God, they're all trivial, laughable, empty, and hollow. They're fit for nothing, only the bin. And the sooner they're there, the better. Jacob and his people finally arrive at Bethel. And it's here that we begin to see similarities with the visit of 20 years ago. 
as we make comparisons, we see that some things haven't changed, but some things have changed entirely. As he did the first time, Jacob built an altar, and he names the place of worship. The last time he called the place Bethel, and that means house of God. At that point, we get the impression that he's been struck by the place. This place becomes important to him. But now, in, on his return, he names the place El Bethel, meaning God of Bethel. His focus has shifted from the place to the God whom he's meeting in this place. This time, the interest is in God himself. Jacob's moved on. He's no longer interested in in geography so much as he's interested in God himself. And that's a journey that we all need to make at some point in our lives. We need to get beyond the point where we're only interested in coming to the place where, where God is and where other people meet with God. We need to move beyond that point and come to the point where we are meeting with God. Where, where the God is no longer the God of a, a particular place, but he's, he's my God. It's, it's quite a common thing in Ulster still for people to be churchgoers. To be in the habit of coming along to a particular place at a particular time. And that's good. And we hope and we pray that God is in that. But we all need to move beyond that. We need to move to a point where we're not churchgoers so much as people who meet with God. As we read on in verses 9 to 15, we find more and more points of comparison with Jacob's previous trip to Bethel 20 years before. Firstly, we're told in verse 9 that God appears to him and blesses him. That's what God did 20 years ago. At that time, God had taken all the promises he'd made to Abraham and he transferred them to his grandson Jacob. And now in verses 11 to 12, we see the same promises confirmed. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. We find another point of comparison in Jacob's response. Twenty years ago when God appeared to him, Jacob responded in worship and he set up a stone to commemorate his meeting with God. Here in chapter 35, this stone becomes important again. But this time we get the impression that he's rededicating it again in an act of worship before God. The material in these chapters is really quite similar. And it's so similar that some biblical scholars think that it's the same material. They think that the writer has simply cut and pasted um, from chapter 28 into chapter 35. 
But if you look carefully, that's clearly not the case. That understanding wouldn't make sense of the contrasts that that we see between these two passages, the ones we're going to notice just now. When Jacob met with God at Bethel for the first time 20 years ago, he was filled with fear. We read in chapter 28 and verse 17 that he was afraid. But this time, in stark contrast, there's absolutely no indication that Jacob's afraid. I thought there's a lovely encouragement here for for the long-term journey of faith. I wonder if it isn't true that, that for most of us, when we start out in our journey with God, along with the excitement and the enthusiasm, there's a fear. It's a fear that we maybe don't speak of, but if I articulate it for you, maybe you'll, it'll ring a bell with you. We're not yet fully confident of who God is and of his character and how that will play itself out over and against us. We wonder, for example, does God really have my best interests at heart? We wonder whether following Jesus might turn out to be a mistake. We wonder whether God's grace could really extend to the likes of us. And we wonder whether God's faithfulness will hold us till the end or whether we're going to fall away. For young believers, I think this fear is there, even if we don't express it. And for young believers like this, I think it's a lovely thing when we can spend company in the time of older saints for whom this fear has gently receded from their lives. It it takes more than a year or two, I think, for this to happen. It it takes decades. It takes us to walk maybe the bulk of our lives to discover that those fears are unfounded. To discover that God's grace is sufficient for us despite all of our frailty and all of our sinfulness and all of our weakness to discover that God's faithfulness does extend and continue for decades and generations. As a younger man, Jacob was afraid when he met God. He's not afraid anymore. He's changed in this deepest way. There's another contrast between his first visit to Bethel and his return, the whole context is entirely different. God first appeared to Jacob when he was a cheat running from his brother's murderous rage. But now, after two years of living under God's blessing, Jacob finds that God appears to him and reconfirms all the blessings that that he's already given him in the past, that he's promised in the past. It struck me again, often our first meetings with God are made at a time of crisis. For many of us, we only ever end up opening our lives to God because because something's gone wrong. 
because we've realized that we're on the run. We have nowhere else to go. We've made a muck of things and we need help. We realize how desperate our case is. So we open our lives to God. It's a wonderful thing then when our experiences of God's presence move beyond crisis and crisis only. When we, like Jacob, are people who can look back on two decades of walking with God and of knowing God's blessing. When we can stand in the present and look to the future and hear God's, God's blessing reiterated and can look with hope to God's blessing being worked out in our lives. It's a wonderful thing when our walk with God can mature from desperation into deep love and devotion. When Jacob first met with God, he was a fugitive. But now he's a father in the people of God. Of course, the most significant contrast between Jacob's first experience of Bethel and this one is the transformation that's occurred in his own life in the interim. It's captured for us here in verse 10 when God reminds Jacob of the name change he's experienced, a name change that speaks of a life change. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. I'm going to leave this contrast for now and pick it up in a few moments as we conclude. Before we conclude on the life of Jacob and on this whole series, I want to take a quick look at the remainder of the chapter, the part that we didn't read this evening. In broad terms, it tells us of three deaths and one birth. Actually, we've already skipped over the first death. In verse 8, we're told that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak tree below Bethel. Deborah's a name you mightn't be familiar with. It's the first time her name is given, but we've come across her before in the narrative. In chapter 24 and verse 59, we're told of the time when Rebecca left her father's household and took a nurse with her to go and to be married to Isaac. That's, that's uh, Deborah we're thinking of at that point. So for years, as an outsider, she's come into the family of God and she's been living among God's people. This mention of Deborah's death here is interesting. Not so much in itself, because, but because because of what it does in flagging up the absence of Rebecca's obituary. Rebecca's death isn't mentioned. The last time Rebecca was mentioned in the biblical narrative is that time when as a mother she sent Jacob from the family home to go to her brother Laban. After that, not another word of her. Not even a word of her death. We thought about this earlier in the life of Jacob. It's not easy to be entirely sure why Rebecca's been written out of the narrative like this, but most commentators agree that she demonstrated a lack of faith in God. If you remember, 
she used manipulation and deception in the family life. She was the mastermind behind the plan to trick Isaac. So although God's will was ultimately done, Rebecca was involved only by manipulation and deception. God's will is done in the end, but Rebecca's scheming and deception is never commended from a, a central position in the story of salvation. By her lack of faith, Rebecca works herself out to the fringes. The biblical narrative only hints at the death of Jacob's mum, but we're told in detail about the death of Rachel, his wife, and the true love of his life. She died on the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and she died giving birth to her second child, another son. As she breathed her last, she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my trouble. And Jacob, we discover, renamed him. This is the only time that Jacob names one of his children. And that's important. It demonstrates to us that Jacob has finally taken the leadership role that he should always have had in his family. In the past, he's been very passive at times regarding what's going on in his own household. But suddenly and finally, he's much more active. He calls the wee one Benjamin, son of my right hand. Even in her death, Rachel's experiencing an answered prayer. At the time when she gave birth to her first son, she called him Joseph. And Joseph simply means, may he add. From the time of the birth of her first son, Rachel had only one thing in mind, and that was a prayer that God might add another one. May the Lord add to me another son was the prayer of her life. And here, with Benjamin's birth and her own death, her prayers answered. A birth and a death coming together. Joy and sorrow that are common in all human experience. And they come to Jacob hand in hand. We had a similar experience to this in our own family just last year. When my mother died, she died on a Sunday night, not long after I'd finished leading worship here as usual. Before we buried her on the Friday, a baby was born into our family. What would have been another granddaughter for my mom, born on the Thursday before the funeral on Friday. So as a family, we had the joy and the sorrow, and they both came at once. I have to say, my experience of that, I didn't know how to deal with that. So I didn't try to know how to deal with it. I just allowed the sorrow to be there and the joy to be there and for the two to sit side by side. 
Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's life. That joys and sorrows come, and sometimes they come together. It's not until verse 27 that we're told that Jacob finally made it home to his dad's house in Hebron. Can you imagine the scene? Isaac, he'd reluctantly blessed his younger son 20 years ago in the midst of all that corruption and deception and and family mayhem. And now he finally sees his son return home again. Maybe for the first time, Isaac sees in his youngest son, Jacob, a man who's worthy of the blessing he gave him. We don't know. We're not told. We're simply told here of a third death. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Jacob's faced three deaths and one birth. Births and deaths, they're the stuff of life itself. We won't go far in our walk with Jesus Christ without experiencing the joy of a birth. That time when, when somebody is born into the community that we're part of, where we welcome them into our family. And we won't go long either before we experience a death. That time when a dear one to us is taken from that community when they're no longer with us. These events seem so big that they maybe stand outside of God's work in our lives. Friends, it seems to me that this is the very stuff of life. Births and deaths. They all fit into this life that God calls us to live with him, to walk through knowing his presence and his grace and his care. This is the place where God wants to meet with us and work out his purposes in us. That's it. We've pretty much come to the end of this journey with Jacob. How do we conclude this study on the life of Jacob? Let me pick up two things. One thing about Jacob and one thing about God. First of all, Jacob. The biblical narrator has been very honest with us about Jacob. He hasn't tried to conceal the fact that Jacob is, among other things, a crook. Twice he cheated his brother Esau out of what was coming to him. Once, at least, he took advantage of his blind father. Eventually, he outdoes his double-crossing uncle Laban, 
and he cons him out of most of his livestock. And later on, when Laban's looking the other way, Jacob sneaks, on, sneaks off not only with the man's daughters and most of his livestock, but pretty much with everything else that wasn't nailed down in Jacob's household. He even takes with him the household gods. Jacob is a crook. That's what the biblical writer tells us. And yet this man ends up right at the center of God's plans to bring salvation to the world. God takes this crooked fella and makes something of him. And by the time we get to the end of the story of Jacob, we have a sense that he's substantially different than he was at the start. He's not perfect, but he has been changed, really changed. And that transformation in Jacob is is captured most poignantly in his renaming. Jacob, his name means crook. But God says, no, that's not your name anymore. Now you're Israel, the one who struggles with God. Jacob was known as a crook. And I wonder if each one of us doesn't have a sin that's synonymous with us. If not in anybody else's mind, at least in our own minds. Is there a sin right at the heart of our life that's so deep that we have given up all hope of ever being cured of it? Are we like Jacob? Are we crooks, some of us? Are we manipulators and deceivers? People are always pulling the strings behind the scenes to make sure that we get ahead and get what we want. Are we crooks? Or are some of us selfish to the core? Do we know in our heart of hearts that we can't see the world except through eyes that want to get the best for us, always? Or are we proud people? Have we been proud for decades? Do we know that there's something deep in the heart of us that always looks down on the people around us, always holds ourselves superior to them? What's the sin? that's anonymous, synonymous with your name? What's the thing that in your heart of hearts you think you'll never be rid of? The incredible news in the story of Jacob is that the very sin that defines us can be taken from us. The one right at the center, the one that we think is our whole identity, Jacob is the crook, but not any longer. Now he's Israel, the man who struggles with God and prevails. Friends, there's no aspect of our personality or our character that's beyond God's transforming power. Suddenly, 
we're able to lay our lives open before God, believing that we can be changed. The sins that we thought would go with us to the grave needn't. Isn't that brilliant? I think we learn that in the life of Jacob. We've picked out one thing about Jacob from this narrative. With God, anyone can change. And we'll close with one thing about God. His grace, it's absolutely staggering. I think we see it most clearly on Jacob's first trip to Bethel. Enter into it with me one last time. He's just ripped off his brother. He's done probably the worst thing you can do, and that is he's tampered with the family will, and he's made sure the inheritance comes to him. Just enter into that in your imagination, if you will. Can you think of a worse thing to do than to deceive your father and rip off your brother? Jacob's on the run. He's making his getaway into the hill country. And and one night, uh, when he he senses that maybe nobody's on his tail, he lies down, he rests his head on a pillow, and he prepares to go to sleep. You might think that a person in, in his shoes would struggle to get over to sleep after what he's just done. You might think that if sleep does come, that he'd be tormented with, with dreams uh, by a, a, an overactive conscience trying to, to show him the evil of his ways. But not Jacob. Jacob drops off like a baby and he dreams the kind of a dream that you'd think would be reserved for the highest saints of God. He dreams of a ladder from heaven that comes and rests on the ground beside him. He dreams that God himself speaks from somewhere beyond the ladder. And the words God speaks aren't the words we'd expect. They're not a telling off or a judgment. Those are the words I would have expected in these circumstances. Instead, God comes to him and he tells him, Jacob, See that land you're lying on? That's going to be yours. You're going to have descendants that will one day be a great nation. They're going to live in this land. And if that, as if that wasn't enough, God says to him, Jacob, I'm going to be with you from today onwards. God comes to the crook when he's still got his hands on the steering wheel of the getaway car and he lavishes grace after grace after grace on him. And in doing so, he teaches Jacob a lesson. He comes to this dyed-in-the-wool, double-barreled con artist and he says to him, Jacob, There are some things in life that you can't get for yourself. You can only be given. And that's the grace and the love of God.
Friends, Jacob is like me, and I hope you won't mind me saying it, like you. To use an Ulster word, he's a hallion. There's nothing, nothing in this fella that merits the favor and blessing of God. But God gives it anyway. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the message of Jesus Christ, that God comes to people who don't deserve it, won't deserve it, no matter how long they live, because deep at the core of them, they're crooked, corrupt, and selfish. Friends, we're like Jacob. We're hallions, good for nothings, worthy only of God's punishment and judgment. But here it is. We receive God's grace and his blessing. When we remember Jacob, we'll remember God's grace. It's absolutely staggering. Let's pray. Father God, when we come to your word, we're often on the lookout for heroes and role models, men or women whom we can emulate and seek to follow. Lord, the teaching of your word is emphatic on this point. There is no one to follow or emulate There is no role model for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every character in the Bible shares the same weakness and frailty and fallenness that we all share. Lord, as we come and reflect on this life of Jacob, we thank you that despite his corruption and his crookedness, You came to him and you loved him. Lord, thank you that that's been our experience. That we know that you have reached us despite our unworthiness, our sinfulness, and our frailty. Lord, we confess all of that before you this evening. We thank you that you've come to us nevertheless. And Lord, we pray that you would do the kind of things in us that we've seen you do in Jacob. Make us into men and women who no longer fear you, but who've come to trust entirely in your goodness and grace. Make us men and women who lead our families in your ways. Make us men and women who repeatedly return to places of worship to be in your presence. And Lord, we pray because we believe that this is what you want for us. We pray that you would bless us as you blessed Jacob. 
Make us men and women who live our lives right at the center of the community of salvation. Bring us into your family, we pray. And keep us there by your grace. Amen.